Let's turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 23. Um, we've been in Luke for a while, and we're looking to finish up Luke here in November. Um, but right now we're in Luke 23. We've been considering um, Jesus' crucifixion as he heads towards the point of death and burial here in this chapter. Chapter 24 deals with the resurrection, but for now we are um, in the midst of his trial and of um, the physical and emotional and spiritual pain that he went through, as well as the crucifixion. We're in um, Luke 23, and we'll be in verse 26, and we noted last week that there's all these different characters that sort of chime in and help us to see what's going on. and, and to understand how we are to respond to the person of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to meet a couple other groups this morning. One is an individual named Simon, um, and the other is a group of women who were following Jesus as he was being led to be crucified. So our hope is to look at these individuals and to sort of see from their perspective. These sermons are a little different, I feel like, as I'm approaching them. There's not really a you know, point A, point B as we go through it, but rather we're just catching visions of what it was like for Christ as he walked towards the cross. So I want to read um, right off the bat here in, in Luke verse 23, chapter 23, starting in verse 26. It says, And as they, which would be referring to the, the Roman soldiers, led him, Jesus, away, as they led him away, they seized one Simon, of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? So as we continue to see the events of this day unfold, we've moved beyond the trial. Jesus has been unjustly condemned by the Jewish authorities as well as by the Roman authorities in the person of Pilate. Um, A condemned criminal, we saw last week, Barabbas, has been released. And Jesus, who is innocent, has been handed over to the people and to the violence of the Roman soldiers that are now in charge of seeing him executed. In these verses we see him, he's on his, his journey out of Jerusalem. He would be crucified outside of the city, and so he is heading in that direction. Luke doesn't tell us that right before this there was a a violent scourging that would have happened right before this. Um, And then after that, Mark 15, verses 16 through 20, give us some more insight as to what happened here in between. It says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and Twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. 
So this all has happened after his, his anguish in the garden, after a sleepless night, um, after being mocked and being beaten multiple times before his trial. And so he is, Jesus truly is the Son of God, but he is also a human being. So you think about the anguish and the pain and the physical torment that would have happened to him. The loss of blood alone would be debilitating to anyone, if you can imagine. Not to mention the pain that sort of is ringing in his ears, if you've ever felt that. But don't just dwell on the physical pain. There's there's more going on here. There's there's deeper things going on beyond the physical pain. Jesus is, is, has been totally rejected by people that he loved and he came to, to save. He'd entered this city's, day, this city's days before and he had wept over the city because he loved them and yet they were rejecting him. And add to that this whole mystery that Jesus is now the sin bearer, that he is bearing the weight of the sins of the whole world, as it were, on his back. He's the sinless Son of God and he has become sin and now he is heading to the cross. And after all of this, he is required to, to carry the cross. This probably isn't, maybe as you picture it, the, the whole cross with both sections, but it's probably just the cross beam that would be attached then to the pole that would be in the ground. But in his weakened state, he's, he's unable to carry the cross. Um, and so they grab this guy Simon from the crowd, and they tell him, you, you carry Jesus' cross. So think about Simon. Think about this guy. We're told that he came in from the, from the country, he was presumably in the Passover in, in the city because it was Passover festival time. And so like Jesus, maybe he stayed outside of the city and then came in each day for the celebration. So he's come in from the country. Um, but as he comes in this final day, he finds himself in the, in the midst of a, of a mob. We don't really know anything else about Simon, whether he was a follower before this, whether he's just caught up in the swell of the crowd or whether he wanted to know what was happening to Jesus whether he's really forced to do this against his will and he doesn't want to do it, or whether he's asked to do it and he sort of willingly responds. We can't really know exactly what, what happened here, but all we know is that this man, Simon, picks up Jesus' cross and goes behind him. Luke's very particular about that. He says that, that he followed, he carried it behind Jesus. So it seems to indicate that, that Simon is sort of, he's pulled out of the crowd. Imagine that. He's He's, he's there in the city to celebrate this, this great feast of his faith. And now he finds himself and he's, he's carrying a cross behind a condemned criminal who's going to die that day. His clothes are stained now with, with Jesus' blood as Jesus had carried this cross and now his blood is on him. I mean, this is not a short journey. So if you can imagine carrying a large piece of wood for a long distance up a hill, so he's growing sore. He hears everything. He has a front row seat, as it were, to everything, to the, to the tears and the cries, to the mocking of everyone, to the violence of the Roman soldiers. He sees it all right in front of him. Imagine that. Think about this guy, Simon. I, I just want to think about two things that I think we can learn from him before we look at this, this crowd. The, the first is this. Simon stands as a witness to the truthfulness of the crucifixion of Jesus. Simon stands as a witness to the truthfulness, the veracity, if you will, of the crucifixion of Jesus. So we've noted that, that each of these individuals on the final day of Jesus of Nazareth stand as witnesses for how we should respond to him. But they also stand as witnesses that this account of Jesus is true. 
that it's real. That, that's part of why Luke is writing. He wants to give this orderly account to show that this is not made up. Simon was real. He was a real, true individual. He's from a city called Cyrene. It's found in, in Libya, modern-day Africa. At the time, he had a, a lar- there, in that area, there were a large number of Greek-speaking or Hellenistic Jews that were there. So he probably made the trip there to be a part of the feast. And it's interesting, in Mark 15, we find Mark tells us he had two sons. They were, and he gives their names, Alexander and Rufus. These are Simon's sons mentioned in the book of Mark. So Simon was a father. He had a wife. He had, he had children. And, and we can assume that Mark mentions these two guys, Alexander and Rufus, because they would have been known to the readers of that gospel in that day and, and time. Why else would you mention these individuals? They had names. They were Rufus and Alexander. In fact, some people go to Romans 16.13. In Romans 16.13, as Paul is, is closing out his letter, he says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Could be the same guy. Could be the same Rufus. And if, if that's the case, we know a little more about this family, that, that uh, Simon had a wife, and, and this wife was a mother as of sorts to Paul. What, what an encouragement that she was to Paul. You could go beyond Scripture, actually. I was reading, and there's possible evidence of this guy outside of Scripture, even. There's a, an ossuary, which is a coffin of sorts, that they found in the Kidron Valley near Jerusalem there. And it had this inscription on it. It said, Alexander, son of Simon. But that's who was buried in that, in that coffin. Uh, who knows? Is this the same guy? I, I don't know. It could be. But even if that's not the case, if Romans 16 isn't referring to them, we get this idea that this, this is a real man. Simon truly existed. This, this truly happened to him. So you might let your imagination run a little bit at least and think about him. What would that have been like as he comes, he tells his wife and his children about all that happened to him at the feast, how he came into this city to meet with others and remember the faithfulness of God, and now he finds himself bearing a cross Maybe he went all the way. Maybe he stayed. Maybe Simon was a witness of the actual crucifixion of Jesus. Maybe he stayed in the city until the day of Pentecost. Maybe he was there and he heard the, the preaching and he became a part of that early church. We don't know. But even if we don't go that far down the, the road of speculation, we know this guy was real. He was a true individual that saw this and witnessed it, and Luke puts it in here so that we would believe that this is true, that it actually happened. So not only does Simon stand, though, as a witness for the truthfulness of the crucifixion, but Simon stands as an example of the cost of following Jesus. Simon stands as an example of the cost of following Jesus. I don't think that's the the whole point of this picture, but I can't imagine, I don't think it's a mistake that Luke says Simon followed behind Jesus bearing this, this cross. This is the same Luke that wrote these words of Jesus in Luke 9, 23 and 24. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. He also wrote Luke 14, 26 and 27. Jesus there says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be 
my disciples. So Luke, who recorded these teachings of Jesus, now records this event. And I can't help but think as he writes this that he is picturing this playing out before his eyes and before the eyes of his readers and before our eyes. And, and we are given this picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus, to, to live a life of, to, to go down the road of, of self-denial and of sacrifice and denying ourselves and taking up our cross. Of course, there's no Roman soldiers that are forcing us to do this. We're not being forced into this situation. But the call of Jesus comes to us and says that we are called to lay down our lives, to take up our cross and to, to follow him. A disciple of Jesus is not someone who just sort of likes the things that Jesus says or prays to Jesus or goes to church. A disciple is someone whose life, in fact, is, is marked by death, by the death of Jesus and by their own death in following after him. A disciple is someone who's denied himself, denied even friends and family possibly to follow after Christ. A Christian is marked by the cross. That's the center of our faith, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's the symbol that marks who we are. It's not something we just would wear around our necks, but it's something that we're supposed to bear on our backs, that we're to walk with. Our lives are to be marked by not love for self, but, but love for Christ and, and love for others such that we would lay down our lives for others and lay down our lives for the glory of God. That's what Jesus is modeling us for, modeling for us here. So, I would just say, brothers and sisters in Christ, that, that it cost Jesus his life to bring us salvation. And now he calls us to follow him, to, to lay down our lives and follow him. The death of Jesus wasn't just the way that he purchased eternal life. It's also the way that he calls us into. Remember, Jesus never tells us, go there. He never tells us to do something he hasn't done. He always says, follow me. And he says, follow me as I bear my cross. I may sound miserable, but Hebrews tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and despised its shame. And so there is joy in cross-bearing. There is joy in following Christ. And as Jesus says, you can't find your life unless you ultimately lose it for my sake and for the sake of the gospel. We see here, though, that, that Simon's not the only one following, is he? Verse 27 says there's a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and who were lamenting him. So this multitude is following behind him and some women in particular are there and they are weeping, they are mourning. You know, it's so funny, you think about how popular Jesus was, then how does this happen? And there's some sort of division that, that happened here, I think, to the point where we would say that the religious leaders and those that were calling for Jesus' death created some sort of coup. I mean, they just sort of took control of the situation. But the popular opinion of Jesus was still in favor of him. And so these people are following behind him. They seem to be doing it out of sorrow, out of, out of pity. They may have been his followers before this day, maybe not. Maybe they just recognized the injustice that was going on here. Some people say that there were women who followed after those who were being crucified and offered some sort of um, uh, some sort of medicinal um, drink to help them with the pain, and that possibly could be who these women are. We should notice, though, that that Luke does highlight that there is a a group of women here. Luke has gone to great lengths to to bring out those that were outcasts in that society. 
And of all the gospel writers, Luke highlights the women that were in the midst of following Jesus more than any other gospel writer. And so I think it's good just to remember once again the equality in the body of Christ, that there is no partiality with God. There are no divisions in the followers of Jesus Christ, whether those would be um, distinctions between race or, or gender or ethnicity or socioeconomic status. There is no partiality with God. We are all equal heirs with Christ. These women are weeping. They're mourning. They're lamenting. They're, they're thinking about this injustice that has been done to Jesus. And yet Jesus, in that moment, if you can imagine what this is like, Jesus turns and offers them a warning. He's not saying, he's not rebuking them saying, stop mourning. But rather he wants them to see that, that this heinous, ugly act is what it's pointing towards. And he tells these women, he says, says, don't, don't weep for me, but rather weep for yourselves and for your children. So here's Jesus being led away to be crucified, and people are mourning for him, and he turns and says, you shouldn't cry for me, you should cry for yourselves and for your children. He says that because there's a time coming. It says in verse 29, for behold, the days are coming. That, that phrase is something that Luke has used out, and, and then also coupled with the fact that he calls them daughters of Jerusalem, it, it, it hints that what he's talking about is this, this coming destruction that's going to come on Jerusalem in AD 70. So very soon, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, and Jesus has talked about this a lot within his ministry. And he's talking about this thing as, as he turns to them and says, don't weep for me, it's going to be much worse for you all. You remember even that that's, that's what he was weeping about when he came into the city, that he had come to be the king and, and to have people come and, and, and find refuge in him, but they rejected him. And because of their rejection, now he says destruction is coming on you. The hand of God through the Romans will destroy this city. He says about this destruction, this judgment, that it's going to be a time when, it, when what had been seen as suffering and pain would be a blessing. In particular, he says, those who are barren, who do not have children, will be considered blessed. Those who, who were barren and could not, that was, that, was, that was pain. That was something that women suffered through. They longed to have children, and they received pity for that. But Jesus says that it's going to be the opposite. Luke twenty one twenty three says something similar when he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be a great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. We know from history that this this siege of Rome came and there was famine that spread throughout Jerusalem and so surely mothers had to watch their children die. If you know anything about the in his, the history of Israel when um when Babylon takes over Israel how how terrible that was to the point actually where where children were were eaten because there was no food left. That's how bad this got. And Jesus is saying, this is how bad it's going to get. You don't want to have children. It's how bad it will be. Barrenness will be a blessing. He says it's also going to be a time when death is preferred to life. He says, there's this cry from, from Hosea chapter 10 verse 8. Bless, it says, um, they, we, people will cry out to the mountains, fall on us into the hills, cover us. This isn't a, a cry to be saved out of the coming destruction, but rather to be killed. Say, we would rather die than face all of the pain that is coming from this. And we know from history that this was a terrible, terrible event. 
And so Jesus sees what's coming. He says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. You think this is bad. Destruction is coming. And then he offers this parable of sorts that shows how bleak the situation is. He says if in verse 31, For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? What does that mean? <laughs> it's kind of a confusing phrase. I'll, take, I'll do my best. I think the green is, ref, you, you think about sticks. A, a green stick with the life in it doesn't light on fire. You don't use that to start a fire. You want dry sticks. You've all probably experienced that. And in this, it would seem that the green is referring to Jesus. And that, that the dry wood would refer to the people of, of Jerusalem who are going to face this this coming trial. And so the question, grab something here, the question becomes, who, who's the they? So it says, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dried? This is a commentator, Robert Stein. This is hard, so I'll just read some of him if that's okay. <laughs> who's the they? He says, is it a reference to God? Does it refer to the Romans, he says? Which would mean, if the Romans are doing this to me, whom they acknowledge as innocent, what will they do to you? In AD 70, when you are truly guilty of rebellion? Is it the Jews? If the Jews do this to their anointed one who has come for their salvation, what will God do to them for having killed his son? Is it human beings in general? Stein says it's God. That it's a, a reference to God, the they there. If they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? So it means if God has not spared his innocent son from such tribulation by permitting his crucifixion, how much worse will it be for a sinful nation when God unleashes his righteous wrath upon it by permitting the Romans to destroy Jerusalem? Let me say that again without the, the brackets. If God has not spared his innocent son from tribulation, how much worse will it be for a sinful nation when God unleashes his righteous wrath upon it? So remember, Luke's been emphasizing that Jesus is innocent. He is the green branch. There's no reason for him to suffer. So how much worse will it be for those who deserve punishment? For Jerusalem who has rejected Christ. How much worse will it be? And we can see how it applies to us then, can't we? If God has not spared his innocent son from facing judgment, then, then what will happen to people who are truly guilty before him? This is a strong warning. We're reminded that the destruction of Jerusalem happened, but it was also a foreshadowing of a, a destruction that will come when Christ comes and he destroys evil and wickedness from this earth. And if he didn't spare his own son, what will happen to those who are truly guilty before him? If we remain in unforgiven sin, then... We will cry out, like it says here, fall on us, cover us. We'll say that to the mountains. Actually, in Revelation chapter 6, when the sixth seal of God's judgment is opened up, this is what it says. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave or free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Hebrews says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Jesus knows that there is judgment coming on Jerusalem 
And he knows that there is judgment coming on all who have sinned and rebelled against God. And so he says, don't, don't weep for me. Because if we stand before God with unforgiven sin, then we cannot stand before God. All we stand in is, is judgment. If he didn't spare his son, who was innocent, then what will happen to us if we try to stand before him in our sin? It is interesting, he says, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves. There are people, maybe even you, you're filled with, with emotion at the sufferings of Jesus. And maybe you've seen uh, a movie about the crucifixion and, and you wept. I've been told by many people as I talk to them about spiritual things, about who Christ is, very often, more than one time, they will say to me, I cried when I saw the passion of the Christ. Like that's a, a badge that says I must truly be a follower of Jesus because I was filled with emotion when I saw that movie. It could be true. But I think also, isn't aren't Jesus' words here, don't weep for me. Don't weep for me, but do you see that the punishment that I face is nothing compared to what God will bring upon those who are truly guilty before him? This is a sober warning. If we are dry wood, what will happen to us? If God would allow this to happen to his son who was innocent, then what will happen to the truly guilty who come in judgment? But isn't there, isn't there hope here too? So if there's, there's hope in the fact that God, well, there's, there's judgment, God didn't spare his own son who was innocent, so what might happen to you? I don't know about you, but what keeps ringing in my head is Romans 8.32. If he did not spare his own son, then how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So the, the, the crucifixion of the son means God will surely judge those who are unrighteous and deserve sin. But the crucifixion of the son also means that Christ has made a way, that there is hope, that there is mercy that can come because of what Jesus has done. If he's not spared his own son, but he's willingly given him to die for sins then we have hope. We have hope for forgiveness. There's a day of judgment coming, but today is a, it's a day of salvation. There, there is hope for mercy. On that day, on the destruction of Jerusalem, the only hope for mercy that they had was for the mountains to crush them and kill them. And, and on the judgment day that comes, that's the same hope that they have. But Revelation 9-6 says it's even worse because it says, in those days people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. But but now, now is the day of salvation, isn't it? We can know mercy. Mercy that's greater than a mountain falling on me and crushing me and keeping me from suffering. We can know mercy and forgiveness because Jesus, in fact, walked up the mountain, right? Jesus went to Calvary, that Jesus went to the cross, and there he took the wrath of God upon himself. He took the judgment upon himself. Innocent though he was, he bore our sin, he bore our guilt, and he took it so that if we would repent of our sin and turn and trust in the work of Christ, then we can be saved. So let me summarize this passage in, in two things. It, it stands as a call First of all, to be ready for the coming judgment. It's a call to be ready. He, Jesus is saying, don't weep for me. You need to think about yourselves. You need to think about what's going to happen. If God judges me, 
who and I'm innocent, then what will happen to those who truly deserve judgment? It's a, it's a warning to be made right with God. And I would encourage you, if you've never repented of sin and put your faith in Christ alone, that's, that's where our hope is. It's not in good deeds. It's, it's not in coming to church. It's not in the fact that you were emotionally moved by the fact that Jesus died on the cross. It's being seen ourselves as sinners before God, deserving His wrath upon our sin, and recognizing that Jesus has taken the penalty for our sin. We come to Him in repentance and faith, and we can know forgiveness. And if we know forgiveness of sins, then on the last day, when Christ comes and judges this world, there is nothing that can harm us. The only thing that can truly condemn us is unforgiven sin. And if we are in Christ, then we are cleansed free. So this is a call to be ready for the coming judgment. But I think it's also, as we look back at Simon, it's a call to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Jesus. Like Simon, we are being called to follow Christ, to bear the cross. We're not being pushed by Roman soldiers, but we are being called by Christ himself to follow him. He calls us to deny ourselves. I thought about Simon walking into the city that day. I'm sure he had things that he was planning to do. He didn't go in there expecting to bear someone else's cross. And so for him, it was a denial of everything that he had come there for, to, to now, in obedience to what God had placed in front of him, to, to walk behind Christ to carry that cross. You know, self-denial so much is, is, is found in that. But, you know, we all go through life, and I know what I want to do. I've got my plans and my purposes, and I've determined how I best should live my life. And Jesus comes in and he says, no, actually, follow me. Bear this cross. We would live for the glory of God. And I think so often when we think about bearing our cross, we think maybe about the disciplines of the Christian life or something. But I think bearing our cross is bound up so much in, in love for God and love for others. That it's, it's sacrificing my desires and my wants to, to serve others, to show kindness to others, to share the gospel with others at the risk of being made fun of. That, that that's, that's the call of denying ourselves. Is I'm not worried about me and my own self-interest. I'm worried about the glory of God and, and the good of others. And so I would call us, let's, this week, let's bear our cross. Jesus, why is he walking up this hill? Because of his sin? Because of my sin? Because of your sin? He's serving us as he goes. And so we too go out and we follow him. We lay down our lives for the good of others. To show them the love of Christ and to to call them to repentance and faith in Him. So here's two more individuals or maybe a group. We have Simon who stands as this reminder of what it means to follow Jesus. And we have this crowd, these women in particular, that remind us that judgment is coming and now is the day of salvation. Let's take a moment of silence and we'll just um, reflect on these Two things, these calls, the call to be ready for the coming judgment and a call to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. So I just want to take a moment and we'll, we'll sit in silence and allow God's Spirit to speak to us. And then I'll, I'll close in prayer and we will close in a song.
Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. That you don't leave us blind to the fact that judgment is coming. Lord, but you, you warn us. Lord, thank you that, that you are a God of justice and righteousness. But you're also a God of grace and mercy and love. Thank you that Jesus has made a way for us to know mercy and to know forgiveness of sins and salvation. We thank you for Christ. We have no hope apart from him. Lord, I thank you that the call to follow you, to bear our cross and come after you, to deny ourselves, is, is not a place of misery, but it's the place where we will find true joy. Lord, it's not easy but it is the place where we will be fully satisfied in who Christ is and what he's done. So help us this week, God, to, to know what this means like means in each of our lives to, to bear our cross, to take up our cross and to follow you, to deny ourselves and love others and live for the glory of Christ. Well, we need your help. So I pray you would apply these things in particular ways to our hearts and that you give us the strength because we cannot do it on our own. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.